Sound Design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Oakland, California. Welcome to Sound Design Live. I'm Nathan Lively. Today, my guest is the Director of Business Development at Electrosonics, Carl Winkler. Carl, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. So I definitely want to talk about your career path and how to build a rock-solid wireless system. But first of all, what is your most favorite string quartet of all time? Uh, well, as, as a group, the Guaneri String Quartet is my favorite group. Uh, as a piece of music, it has to be Beethoven's Opus 131 and C-sharp minor. which is a fabulous, very complex piece. Uh, it's seven movements long. It's epic. It's extremely difficult. <laughs> and, uh, have you played it? I have not played... Well, I've played some of it. Uh, I've not, never played the whole thing. And okay. uh, it, it is a monster. It's uh, way ahead of its time. It, at times, it sounds like 20th century music, but it was written in the 1820s. So it's, it's just a great piece of music. I mean, all of Beethoven's quartets are great, and there's a lot of great quartets out there, for sure. Awesome. And just out of curiosity... Um, in your experience, what's the most commonly requested string quartet? Because I know you invite people to help you create the playlist for these events that you play at. Sure. Well, I would say the most commonly requested piece of music that we do is going to be the Paco Bell's Canon in D. Uh, and that's because we do weddings and other events like that. And it's it's just a popular piece. It's beautiful. It, it works well for like wedding processionals where, you know, it's sort of a, it's hard to determine the exact length that's going to be needed because... It's a canon, and so it can be sort of stopped every two bars or so, and, and it sounds like it was meant to be that way. So that's a common one. Um, from there, it really depends. I mean, it could be anything. Uh, Haydn's Lark uh, Quartet is, is a beautiful one that people know and ask about. Mm-hmm. Certainly uh, Beethoven's Opus 18 Number 1. Uh, you know, it, it really runs the gamut, depending on who it is and what, what kind of mood they're looking for. So, yeah, it could be anything. Nice. Um, okay, Carl, so one of my favorite questions I like to ask everyone who comes on the podcast, how did you get your first job in audio? Hmm, that makes me think back quite a ways. So <laughs> I was a, an undergrad student at the University of Arizona in the music department, and I was starting to hang around the studio quite a bit and you know, dabble in home recording. And I think my first paid job, and it probably was 50 bucks, was to record a guitar a classical guitar duo recital, which I did with a pair of mics, probably in, in ORTF setup, uh, to a cassette recorder and probably running to a second cassette as a backup. And the, uh, the guitarists really liked the results and they began to tell others. And so I recorded a few recitals and some uh, audition tapes, demo tapes for people. So that's how I got started. Oh, that's interesting. I got my first job in recording doing uh, recitals at my music school as well. There you go. Yeah, it's a good way for college students to get a little taste of, of what it's like and, and the pressure of recording, which is certainly there. Well, and people talk about um, being hooked by the recording bug, and that's definitely what happened to me because after that I thought, oh, wait, could I study recording? Because I was studying jazz guitar at the time and sort of mm-hmm. suffering. Yeah. Um, and then I started looking to recording. So what were you studying at the time? 
A viola performance. Oh, wow. Okay. And mm-hmm. then you finished that. I did. I got a degree in 1988, uh, and then I was in Tucson working in a music store, doing some gigs here and there, And but the recording bug had definitely bit me as well. And so I started looking for places to go or whatever and, and work in studios. But I found out about a program at USC called uh, Recording Arts, and I went there, and they had two tracks. So you could get a degree in it, which was sort of like a degree in music, and a lot of the classes were music classes. Or if you already had a music degree, you could get what was called a certificate of, certificate of advanced studies. So that's what I did. And I concentrated all the audio classes into a single year, just two semesters, which was tough. But uh, that's all I could afford either. I mean, USC it was extremely expensive and still mm-hmm. is a course today. Uh, but that's uh, that's where I got my you know education from a lot of great teachers and got a lot of experience in the studio. And then uh, tried to make my way in LA, which was very tough. Back then, um, I mean, let's face it, in the 1990s, the recording studio business was crumbling. You know, digital recording had come along and done some democratizing, but, you know, I would say record labels in many ways were on their last legs even then, way before the iPod came along and MP3s. So I found myself, uh, you know, it was hard to find work. I could, there was lots of places that would hire me, quote unquote, you know, for free to, to be a runner or whatever. And a couple of places hired me to do some assistant work. I was doing a lot of technical work, which fortunately I had learned something about. So I knew how to align tape machines. I knew how to solder and make, uh, you know, patch bays mm-hmm. and things like that. And so that's what I did. Five bucks an hour, technical work uh, to survive. I've been trying to kind of get at the essence of what has been successful for people in their careers, what has helped them, what has hindered them. And instead of sort of asking you what your entire career history has been, um, I'm testing out this question where I just ask you if you could pass nothing along to your children, so nothing that you've saved or um, any of your possessions, if all you could pass along to them was a collection of values and strategies, what would you tell them if you wanted them to help them build a career in audio? And maybe you don't want your daughter to build a career in audio, but if they did and they told you that was their passion, they wanted to go into audio, what do you think you could tell them that would help them? Well, first off, I think that audio, like many other careers, uh, is is sort of like a gilded career, meaning that you go into a guild, which means that you start as an apprentice, which means you have to do a lot of the dirty work sweeping the floor, cleaning the toilets, uh, soldering things, carrying things around, parking cars. And, you know, Mm -hmm. that's how most people in the business today got their start, particularly in recording, but also in live sound. And so I would say that the most important thing for that is, first of all, your attitude that is irreplaceable. You know, people with good attitude can find their way, you know, find themselves moving up where others that may have more skills won't. Um... So that's a big one. And to embrace the work, to embrace, you know, to, to, I had a mentor when I was in high school and and he told me something that I've held of value all these years. He said, if your job is to roll tires from the back of the tire store to the front, you should be so good at it that people would pay to see you do it. (laughs) You know, it's like, take the most mundane thing. And, you know, having been to Japan a couple of times, this is a very deep cultural concept there. You see people doing mundane tasks like sweeping the street or, you know, whatever, and and they're, it, they literally turn it into an art. They are absolutely concentrated on their work, and they wouldn't rather be doing anything else, you know. So I think that's a real big one, and of course that translates to any career, but certainly in audio. Don't be afraid of the work, and don't think of it as beneath you, because you're going to learn things that will be valuable 
as you go along. So that, that's a couple of big ones right there. Can we, can we talk for a second about how to do that? Because I've heard those before and those are really good ones. And I have my own idea kind of, of how to get into that attitude. But can you look back at your experience or think about now maybe some practical ways of learning to embrace the work or um, learning to have the right attitude so that you're not upset that you're just sleeping the floor for maybe even if you're doing it for a few months, six months, a year, how, how do you keep remembering that, oh, right, this is why I'm doing this, you know? <laughs> well, I, for one, did not always remember that. And I remember one time I was doing a technical job it was kind of at the back of a studio complex and I, and I was saddled with all kinds of what I thought was lame work and, and this and that. And I called one of my former teachers and I explained the situation and he said, well, you know, there's something to learn from every, everything that, that you do in life. And that has stuck with me as well. So, gosh, it's hard for me to say what it is or how to approach that, you know, how do you embrace that? I, I'm not really sure. Again, mm-hmm. I think all human beings... Uh, struggle with that, you know, thinking that, well, what I really want to do is, is mix records. And I, I remember thinking that a lot. I want to mix records. How come I'm not doing that? How can I show my talents, you know? And, uh, but it really came down to, you know, the only work available was the bottom rung work. That's only, the only thing anyone would give me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and of course opportunities begin to show up after that. Sure. Um, so, you know, I, I don't really know. I, I don't know that I have an answer for that one. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I, I had a similar experience where, I'll, except I had multiple experiences like the one you did where I think a lot of the unhappiness that I would experience in my work was because it wasn't moving quickly enough. I wasn't mm-hmm. getting to the places that I thought I should be and deserved to be quickly enough. And so now with my business coaching clients, a lot of our initial work is just sort of asking that question of why we're doing this to sort of build a solid foundation so that it doesn't crumble when, um, you know, you get into that 12th, 14th, 15th hour of a day when you are just doing the, you know, the really hard labor and you start asking those questions like, why am I here? (laughs) Absolutely. And let's face it, it's tough. I mean, it's hard work no matter what. And, uh, you know, I think the other thing, though, that I would, I would want to pass on is that the basics always matter. The fundamentals of whatever it is you're doing. I mean, if you want to be a painter, you have to know your materials. You have to know your paints and your brushes, you know. And it's true of any, any kind of half art, half science work. And, and audio certainly is that. And the, the things that I learned from my teachers about electronics, power supplies, you know, and then more recently, radio mics and, and what makes those things tick. You know, what's great about the basics is that it always helps you cut through the BS and get to the core of the issue. You know, if you learn how to troubleshoot, you can troubleshoot any kind of system because you know troubleshooting is is a skill. It's learnable. It's not you know, it's not rock. It's not rocket science on one hand, but you know, with without those fundamentals, you can't do the rocket science. Bob McCarthy likes to talk about a sound system as a canvas. And he says, you can't go to your creative place and just start painting if there's a big rip in the canvas. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, you have to know those basics. And I think that's why there's been more recent popularity in sound system tuning and people wanting to understand that because they're realizing how important it is. 
Yes, and Bob McCarthy was one of my early uh, inspirations as well back in the 90s when I worked in the Air Force doing live sound. And I learned, you know, the hard way, some, some things that you shouldn't do and some ways you shouldn't hook speakers and amps up. And, you know, Bob was the one that, that said, well, here's why that blew up. You know, you, you <laughs> yeah. hooked it up this way and you weren't supposed to. And here's what it says in the manual. And, you know, it was a kick in the pants. Every, I mean, we all need that every once in a while. I certainly did at that time. I was very green in live sound when I first started doing it. You can find relevant links and more information about today's interview by using the search box on sounddesignlive.com. While you're there, pick up the Sound Design Live ebook with the best material from my first two years of interviews with audio industry leaders. You are participating in a workshop in Dallas, Texas on January 3rd and 4th as part of Synod Con um, called Making Wireless Work. So, Carl, what's the big deal? Um, we all have Wireless Workbench. It's a free program you can download onto your computer, onto your laptop, take it with you right now. Problem solved, right? What else is there? <laughs> um, there's tremendous tools out there for, for us. Uh, in, in sound engineering and, and certainly in, in wireless mics. There's never been better tools than there are today. Uh, but one of the things that I say whenever I do a seminar, and I'm going to say it on you know, January 3rd and 4th, is these tools are only as good as you are. You know, A tool like Wireless Workbench is a fantastic tool that's available to us. However, again, if you don't know your fundamentals, if you don't know why this tool is being used and how to use it and what some of the tricks are and you don't have any experience to draw on, well, you're not going to be able to get the results uh, that, that you could if you had those things. And so, you know, that's why these seminars exist. I mean, we're, we're going to spend two days. It's a great team of people uh, that I've worked with before on things like this. And, you know, we really feel confident that the people, if they pay attention and ask good questions, are going to come out of there uh, transformed in their knowledge of wireless mics. And I know even some veterans have signed up for this class, which is, you know, raises the bar for us because we, we're going to need to be teaching the right stuff, show the right things, do a lot of really interesting demos, live demos, and so on. So the bar's high. And, uh, but yeah, that's really the bottom line issue is that experience counts, knowledge counts, knowledge of the fundamentals. Sounds like you're saying that systems are complex enough that even if I'm using some powerful free software like Wireless Workbench, I might go out and set it up, but then if someone else who has a lot more experience and knows what they're doing does, uses the exact same tool, they will create something much more stable and robust than I would. Yes, that's exactly right. These systems are complex. And part of the reason they're complex is because it's, you know, with wireless, there's invisible waves that are coursing through us all the time from television, from radios, from cell phones, from you know, iPads, you name it. Wireless mics, comm systems, IEMs, right? So when you go onto site and set up a system like this, you're being bombarded with all these other external sources. That's a big one. So, and you may not be able to detect them even with the gear that you have unless you've got high-end spectrum analyzers and things like that. Mm. So the knowledge that that is the case uh, helps a lot and then knowing how to deal with it, you know, by setting up your system in a certain way. I mean, an example is directional antennas. Everyone loves them. They call them bat wings or shark fins, whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the common ones that you see. They're actually LPDAs or log periodic dipole arrays to be technical. 
And people see these and go, wow, those look really cool. I need those at my church. But they don't realize that these things need to be used carefully, like any powerful tool, right? So then where you point the null of the, those antennas is just as important, maybe even more so than where you point the, the active side, you know? Cutting out background noise is always important in a wireless system. So that's just one big one that, that there's nothing in wireless workbench that tells you that. You have to know that. You have to learn that somewhere. Uh, yeah, I've always wondered about that because sometimes, especially in small rooms or asymmetric rooms, I'll see people with sort of strangely positioned antennas and I'm like, well, I guess that's all they could do. But from what you're telling me, it sounds like it might be smarter in some situations that I'm not even describing, but it's possible. there's a possibility that you might want one of those directional antennas and then you might want your uh, your B antenna to be um, not a directional antenna, maybe um, you know the normal yeah whip antenna exactly, and those are omnidirectional or a, something like a dipole antenna or a ground plane antenna. Those are all yeah. uh, omnidirectional in the in the lateral plane. I know I'm getting sort of off track now, but can you combine those? Is that a problem? You, no, it's not a problem to combine okay. them. Okay, yeah. great. What are some of the most common wireless myths that you run into that people think are important but really are not true? Yeah, there's a bunch of them. And I would say that really the overarching myth, as I call it, is that wireless mics are voodoo or require black magic you know, to work. People say that, uh, oh, well, last week this worked and this week it doesn't. This stuff is voodoo. You know? And I, I call BS on that because... If you know what you're doing and you've set your system up properly and you're using good equipment, uh, it should be absolutely rock solid. And the results of you know something like the Super Bowl or Broadway, you know, show that that's the case. People that are using the same equipment, set it up properly, do all the right frequency coordination and everything, and with all the experience they have, and they make it work. They make it flawless with you know over a thousand channels of wireless going on during the Super Bowl. You know, that's something that would. Uh, Scare the heck out of anybody who who's you know thinks of it as voodoo. You know you know what I mean. So in terms of specific stuff that we see or that I see, uh, I would say you know antenna placement, uh, bad antenna placement is is a very common thing. Uh, you know and and people have their sort of mythical reasons as to why that is. Mm-hmm. Again, you know I need a directional antenna. That that's that's one right there. Why? You know. So. Then the next thing is that uh, the, a myth is that I can get more range out of my system by using boosted antennas or RF boosters mm-hmm. in line. Okay, so people spend money and put these boosters in line, and, and the actual truth there is that it's usually not the case. You're not extending the, extending the range, but what you are doing is introducing an active component into your system. And you know, true of any sound design or any audio system, any any time you add an active component, you are potentially raising the noise floor, and you're also potentially increasing distortion. Oh, because you're it, changing the gain structure. You're changing the gain okay. structure. And when you've got an active component, you've got something that can mix signals and generate intermod products, intermodulation distortion, and that means you're creating phantom wireless signals that not only do they raise your noise floor, but they can actually act as real wireless signals. They can trigger your receivers to release squelch, depending on how, you know, what kind of receivers you have. So again, that's another one. I, I'm getting greater range by boosting. You're probably not. Boosters are 
really only used or only supposed to be used to overcome the losses in cables or um, passive splitters. You always want a net zero gain between your antenna and your receiver. What do the people who work on the Super Bowl halftime show have that I don't have? What do they have in terms of equipment that makes them create stable um, wireless setups? And, and what do they know about frequency coordination and event production that I don't know or that I don't have experience in? Sure. Well, there's a lot of questions built into that. So, <laughs> right. you know, in terms of what they have that you don't, probably I would say that they, they are using wireless systems that are expensive. Uh, you know, wireless is one of those things that you get what you pay for, and you, frankly, you may not need some of the benefits of some of the highest-end types of systems. You know, uh, you know, every major manufacturer, Sennheiser, Shure, Electrosonics, you know, we, we've all got high-end systems that are used in those kinds of environments, and they work well. Uh, so that's one thing that the average person, the average church, the average, you know, theater school and whatever doesn't have those, those pieces of equipment. Um, but then in terms of specific ways that the systems are set up, uh, a, a type of filter called a cavity filter is often used for those large events. Ooh, what's and what that? that is, a cavity filter is like the opposite of a notch filter in a way. It's a, it's a passband filter, and it's designed to let only a certain frequency range through the system at all. So that helps a lot by blocking out all the other crap that's going on out there. Oh. As I said before, you're being bathed in all these wireless signals, and you want to make sure that only the ones you want get into your receivers. So, you know, antennas can be tuned as well, but that starts getting a little tricky. So typically you're using wider band antennas, and then you're using cavity filters to notch everything out, knock everything out, other than the signals that you want. So that's a tool... Uh, that, that's using those kind of things that makes a difference. Okay. Uh, then next, you asked about frequency coordination. What are they doing? Well, first of all, they're the guys doing those kind of things like Brooks Schroeder and, and James Stafo. By the way, James is on on that teaching group for uh, SynodCon. Oh, cool. On January three four, he's done a lot of Super Bowls, so he has you know decades of experience going back to his time as as a radio person in the Navy you know, to draw on. And, and so he knows all the tricks of the trade, you know, how far away can you be and reuse a frequency? Uh, you know, how can I stuff one more, you know, comm channel into this mix when we've already got, you know, 48 comm channels, you know? So just guys with tons of experience is what the, what they have that the average situation does not. I guess, um, I mean, it just made me think of this, but I remember my mother telling me that one of the reasons that you need to have your baby in a hospital at all is just because there's so many things that could go wrong. That's so, right. I, so it's mm -hmm. not that it's not that maybe it's super complicated or that your body is not healthy, but there may be a thousand things that could go wrong. So you want someone who's there to kind of watch out for those things and plan against them. Uh, that's a great analogy. Absolutely. You know, the majority of, of births go just fine. And the majority of wireless systems, if set up properly, go just fine. Uh, it, it is when things go wrong, you know, that you need. You know, there's the famous story about uh, you know, the person had a problem with his, his plumbing. So he called the cheapest plumber in the phone book and the guy came and worked on it for an hour and couldn't fix it. And then they called the next guy and he came and worked on it and couldn't fix it. So finally, uh, the customer calls the most expensive plumber, 
you know, the guy charges $100 just to show up. So the guy comes in, walks up to one of the pipes, taps on it with a wrench and says, try it now. And the problem is solved. And the guy presents him with a bill for $100. And he says, you know, but wait a minute, all you did was walk in and tap on that pipe. And the plumber said, yeah, but I knew where to tap. <laughs> I've heard another version of that story where the guy says, uh, I could just get a wrench like that. Why should I pay you? And he says, here you go. And then hands him the wrench and walks out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. Or, or another version of that one too is, is a photographer is, is at a big dinner party and you know, uh, someone begs him to get out his portfolio, and so he finally does. And everyone is amazed by the quality of this guy's pictures, just loves it. So the host says, you know, I, I got to ask, I mean, what kind of camera do you use? I mean, these pictures are just fabulous. So the guy says, oh, you know, that, that reminds me, I was meaning to ask you what kind of pots and pans you use for the dinner you cook tonight. <laughs> That's good. You know, so experience really does matter. And, and I would say I'm still green in this business. I mean, I've learned a lot from some of these guys like Staffo and Joe Cidelli and you know, my boss, Gordon Moore, and, you know, picked up things along the way. But it, it is a, it's a fascinating art and science, what it takes to do these big systems. I did an interview with Jim Venable from the Wireless Speaker Association uh, that I published back in the summer, and he told me about the wireless technology they use for their speakers, which is interesting because it's constantly scanning the spectrum for available space, and if it detects interference on its current channel, then it always knows a channel that will be available um, that it can switch to. Is there right. anything like that available for wireless mics and what new technologies are coming out to create more robust connections? Yeah, it's a great question. The only system that I'm aware of right now that, that does something like that is the Axiant system from Shure. And you know, quite a few years ago, I'd say 10 years ago, all of us started thinking about this issue that you know, the spectrum's getting more crowded and uh, where is this going to go? And they clearly... Uh, you know, jumped in with both feet and, and spent what it took to develop that system. And, you know, I think that they've certainly, uh, they've achieved something with it. I mean, it's not a perfect system, no system is, but it does a lot of what you're describing. You, you know, it can pre-assign frequencies and then, excuse me, if the receiver uh, determines that the channel it's on is, is no good, it sends a signal out to a separate um, sideband transmitter uh, like a Wi-Fi transmitter, and that it changes the the frequency. So mm-hmm. it's it's very cool. Um, you know, other companies are working on various other solutions, and and we've got some stuff in the pipeline, of course, as well. Uh, nothing that I can talk about, unfortunately. Tell but, me your secrets, Carl. <laughs> but uh, clearly, uh, digital technology is 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 a big one that uh, we're working on very hard. Actually, we we've had digital wireless mic systems out for more than ten years, and so. You know, we're on to our third generation of these systems now. Uh, but, but digital allows you to do a number of things that you can't do with analog. Uh, and one of them, of course, is that the noise floor, as long as you've got a decent signal, the noise floor is, is irrelevant uh, with digital, kind of like you know, digital audio. You get mm-hmm. a good, good enough signal and you got some error correction in there, it can be a very rock-solid signal and sound really, really good. Mm-hmm. You can also uh, do data encryption, which can be important for certain kinds of clients. So that's another big one with digital. But like anything, there's trade-offs. You know, with digital, you've got latency. Uh, and analog, you don't. Um, some digital systems allow you to, to pack the channels tighter by doing more and more 
compression on the signal uh, by using really, really low power signals and things like that. So, uh, and uh, there's a system out by Audio-Technica called uh, Ultra Wideband, or it's called SpectraPulse, but it uses Ultra Wideband up at six gigahertz. Uh, and that's a very interesting system as well. Uh, it's got a limited channel count, as many digital systems do. Uh, but anyway, so that's, that's where a lot of R&D money is going in all these companies, is looking at digital solutions. And uh, we're seeing the first few of them out there. Um, you know, how to modulate the signal and how to do error correction and how to do data compression. Those are things that we're all starting to get really good at. And all those things help have a robust signal. Mm-hmm. Essentially, the top-end systems that you see everywhere in the world right now are, by and large, analog, mm-hmm. interestingly enough. I didn't know that. Yeah. Carl, can you explain to me what a backup frequency is and how to use it? Because I've never quite understood, but I know that, for example, using Wireless Workbench, you can ask for it to calculate a backup frequency for each of the things you have in your inventory. Um, and what I always, in my imagination, what that is is something that will be switched could be switched to if there's interference and I just hit the backup button and it switches to the backup frequency but I don't really think that's the way it works is it not usually it's not as automatic as that but I mean your basic concept for what it is I think is correct um, you know before we can talk about backup frequencies and what they mean exactly I would I would want to take us you know just go one previous concept here and that's frequency coordination in the first place, sure. Let's yeah. I keep uh, <laughs> keep jumping ahead, but yeah. Let's, no, that's fine. Let's come sure. back. Where where do you want to start with that? Can you want to give us a general overview, um, and then come back to that? Band planning is your first step, and that's something that a lot of people miss. And I've seen it quite often on tours. And, you know, I should tell you. I think you'll probably ask me at some point about you know what some of the the bad things that you've seen, the bad. Yeah, that was going to be and my things. next question. Mistakes that you see people making often. Yeah, maybe we can you know interweave these so. Band planning means that you're going to separate out your mics from your ears, from your comms, and from your IFBs, and each of those is going to exist within a certain slot in the in the in the spectrum. Okay, and that's important because these different systems can tend to step on each other if they're too close in frequency to each other. So, I recently saw a tour. I was up in Toronto, and I met up with a friend of mine who does uh, some mixing. And anyway, he he said, you know, where if you don't mind, take a look at our at our uh, wireless rack. So I did, and I noticed that their ears and their mics were all in the same band, which is just not good huh. because you've got your antennas right on top of each other. I mean, you've got your IEM transmitter antennas pointed at the stage. Right, but they're literally right next to your receiver antennas, which are picking up signals from the stage. Right. So there's a proximity issue. Okay. Right? I mean, to some extent, directional antennas can help, but you still really don't want to have your ears and your comms and your mics all in the same frequency band. So you want to separate them. That's the first step. Then the next thing is that you, you want to have a minimum spacing between your mics and your comms, and your IEMs, and your IFBs, or anything else that's going on, right? And a minimum spacing means you don't want to get your mic transmitters closer than about 400 kilohertz from each other. Okay. Even though you, you, can, you can do it, I mean, in the menu, you can go in there and get some things as close as 5 kilohertz from each other. Well, that will not work because these systems all occupy a certain amount of bandwidth, okay? And for most of the stuff we're talking about here, they're, they're occupying... 150 kilohertz, 
So clearly, they can't be any closer than that, and you want to maybe give them a little breathing room. Mm -hmm. So that means you got them at least 300 kilohertz apart and probably 400. And that's when you're using good equipment. If you're using cheap stuff, you need to get it further apart than that because they're not as well filtered. So that's uh, we're just building up to the next thing. The next thing is that not only can you not space them closer than a certain point, you don't want to have them spaced evenly because all of these systems tend to interact a little bit. These are all radio devices. You've got transmitters creating signals and sending them, and they're bouncing off everything. They're interacting with anything metal, and they're certainly interacting with each other. Because of this, as I mentioned before, there's something called intermodulation distortion. That means when two two or more signals mix within an active device, such as a transmitter, a receiver, an antenna booster, anything like that, they will create frequencies, phantom frequencies, Okay, that can interfere with what you're doing. So to avoid doing that, you know, you want to use uneven spacing. That's easy enough to do if you're just doing a few wireless channels. Mm-hmm. But if you've got a lot of wireless channels, the only way to get that right is with mathematical calculations. That's where the software comes in. Okay. Something like Wireless Workbench. Okay, that software does these calculations for you. It'll build in the minimum step size and it will mathematically calculate where to drop your frequencies so that they won't interact with each other and create something that is going to step on one of your channels. Okay, So that allows us to explain what spare frequencies are. Spare frequencies are calculated by the system as pre-coordinated frequency channels that you don't need to use at the moment, but when you do need to use them, they're already calculated to fit into the overall scheme of what you're doing. So the opposite of that is simply randomly choosing a frequency and saying, well, I've got a spare here and it worked last night. Let's or try this. Yeah, let's try this. <laughs> and I hear that a lot. Uh, you know, go ahead and bump it up another 100 kilohertz or another 200 kilohertz. That's absolutely guesswork and that's not going to help you. We'll not get the job done, especially if you're using a large system, a large complex system. So that's kind of the overview of, of the art and science of you know, frequency coordination and what it means for guys on a large event. You know, they've got to go through and do all these calculations and very carefully choose frequencies for everything to be on so that there's no interaction and nothing's going to step on anything. And there's a lot to that. It's a lot of work. Yeah, I think uh, my experience is that for a long time I wanted to ignore that stuff and that information just like, ah, oh, I, I can't really deal with it. I can't learn the math. I don't, mm-hmm. the software is not available to me. So, really, the only thing we could do was pick, you know, assuming we had all the same model of a certain uh, wireless unit from the same company, we could just pick a group and use channels within that group and hope that we don't run out of channels, right? <laughs> well, that's exactly right. And a lot of manufacturers uh, had those kind of groups set up. Uh, you know, Electrosonics used to include a little, fold-out card that had all these groups that you could program your stuff on. And then there was uh, the next step after that was to have those groups already preset in the systems and you go into a menu and pick them. But recently we've kind of done away with that uh, because the, the big thing it doesn't take into account is any other external sources like TV channels or other systems. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, those frequencies might work with each other. That's wonderful. Except you know, you know, you're not all by yourself on the moon Okay, there's, there's tons of other stuff going on. So there's a good chance that you're going to have a problem even if you use one of those kind of preset groups. Yeah, because if you're using group one and you have several units deployed in your room and the guy next 
door to you could be using group two, then you could have problems, right? Absolutely. Did you have anything else on your list of mistakes that you're seeing people make often? Yeah, I, I will say a couple things that I see, and most often, as I mentioned earlier, you know, bad antenna placement is, is one of the big ones. Uh, there was an, a big national tour that came through here once, and you know, we went and saw them. They used some of our stuff, and I know the front of house guy. Um, but the monitor engineer and, and, and some of these guys are like this. You know, these guys have been doing it a long time, and they know what they're doing, quote unquote. And uh, he had his his uh, his mic receivers, antennas, mounted on a, a microphone stereo bar, which means that they were about 12 inches apart, which really isn't far enough. And he had those mounted on like a mic stand. And then he had his in-ear antenna m- mounted on the same mic stand, just, you know, again, 12 inches away from his receiver antennas. The whole thing was just on one of those straight stands with a weighted base, right? I bet it looked cool. With, it looked kind of cool, but the, the thing was that it was, first of all, just mechanically a bad idea because this acted like a sail. You know, these direct, directional uh, antennas are like a big yeah. paddle. So a puff of wind comes along, and this is what happened. It, it, it blows over, you know, so that, that could literally bring down a show, yep. uh, you know, to think, oh, and, and some, something so simple. You know, really, this is what's bringing down the show? Um, but then as we were watching the show, I kept hearing this high-pitched whine coming through the system. And, you know, being a radio guy, I know what this is. It's, it's interaction between his in-air transmitters and his mic receivers. Oh. But the performer, you know, was pointing to her ears and, you know, saying something. And, and, and so I heard something about, you know, there's, there's feedback. Get, get her another microphone. And it was like, it's not feedback. It's a radio problem because of how these antennas are set up. So that was just one example of a horror show, you know. But all of us in the business see things like, you know, whip antennas on the back of a receiver in a rack, in a metal rack, tucked away in a machine room somewhere. What's wrong with that? Oh, because the metal blocks the signal? The metal blocks the signal. So they wonder why they have no range. You know, these are are pieces of crap. How come, you know, they need to get that guy down here to fix this? You know, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, those are the most common problems. And then just kind of cheaping out and, you know, doing antenna combining with, uh, with Y connectors and things. You know, you can't do that. Uh, these things have impedances. Uh, they need to be matched properly. They need to use the correct cables. Uh, you know, just that. Another very common thing is to not take into account the fact that the signal, uh, the signal losses through the coax cable. You know, when you've got a microphone... Uh, you know, microphone with a low Z output, you can run it probably 200 feet, you know, on a mic cable before you would notice any high frequency loss, right? Um, that's not true with, with uh, antennas. You know, the signals that are picked up are, are fairly small, and then they've got to be piped down this coax. And if you're interested, you can go online and look for, you know, coax losses by foot, you know, and there'll be tables all over saying, oh, if you're using RG58, this is the loss. If it's RG8X, it's this. If you're using 9913, it's this. And that is just simple addition and subtraction math that you would want to do to figure out if you're using the right cables and how long they could be and if you need to use boosters or not. Okay. Well, um, can you give but me. People miss that a lot. Do you think you, I don't know if you know this from the top of your head, but do you know any rules of thumb? For example, what cable lengths to not exceed? Say, for example, you have that RG8X that's going from your directional antennas to your, um, what do you call it, to the distribution amp that then distributes that antenna signal to all of your wireless units. Right. 
the, the basic rule of thumb, of course, is, as I mentioned earlier, you want unity gain between your, your antennas and your receivers. So for instance, well, and I should mention this too, directional antennas have a little bit of passive gain. They have about 4 dB of gain. So that's a real nice advantage. So for instance, if you use really low loss cable like 9913 F7, that's a cable that loses about 3.5 dB per 100 feet. Okay, that's very low loss. It's very expensive cable, thick and heavy. Um, that's what they use in the Super Bowl? Yeah, they're, they're using stuff like that. Uh, and a lot of installations are. Uh, but so if you do that math, you say, well, the antenna's got 4 dB of passive gain. We're going to lose only 3.5 dB over 100 feet of this cable. We don't need to put a booster. We can just plug it in, and it's going to work great. And right. it will, right? If you use an RG8X, that's a cable with something more like 7 dB of loss at 100 feet, 7 or 8. So there, you probably do want to do maybe just a slight boost, like a 3 dB boost. you got plus 4 at your antenna, plus 3, now we've got 7 dB. That's going to almost come perfectly at the end of 100 feet of cable. So that's just a couple examples. Again, it's not, it's not difficult to understand, but it's often missed. And I'm remembering, that, um, I'm remembering that the manuals for these antennas and the distribution amps come with a table that say how long you can run the cable. Um, but what I'm, trying to, sense. what I'm trying to think of is what are situations where you're running a cable 100 feet? Oh, this cable runs much longer than that. Uh, it, it just depends on installation. You might have a hundred run, hundred foot run of cable just to get your uh, your far side proscenium antenna, you know, over the arch and into the rack. Oh, because it's on the other side of the um, stage. stage. I got it. I mm-hmm. was thinking of most times not being that far away from uh, wherever your distribution amp is or wherever your wires units are. But I forgot about the other side of the stage. That's right. So that's one example. I mean, imagine a, a TV studio where you've got a central machine room where all the receivers are, and then you've got antennas distributed throughout the facility, some running as far away as 250 feet, um, you know, some less than that. Some might be quite a bit less. So you've got to balance all that out. You, you need to have unity gain on every one of those runs. I've heard that things like Bluetooth and wireless telephones and even microwaves can interfere with our wireless systems. Am I going to see those on my when I do like a um, spectrum analysis when I'm doing my frequency coordination? Or are those things that will just pop up and I won't see them and it'll just wreck everything? Uh, I would say it's, it's kind of in between there. First off, if you've got a properly designed wireless mic system, generally those things should not interfere. It goes back to those myths, you know, one of them is, oh, you know, the chain motors were interfering. Well, they shouldn't have. And if they are, you've got another problem somewhere in this system. Because these things are all on different frequency bands. I mean, the FCC controls what bands any kind of device is supposed to be on. Uh, Although I will say this, that one thing we're seeing more and more now is these LED walls uh, create wideband signals. And you can see it on a spectrum analyzer. Uh, and they do definitely step, you know, raise the noise floor for the wireless mics, because quite honestly, to be to be uh, candid here, they're illegal. They're, they're <laughs> supposed to. They, they, I mean, they're supposed to pass certain kinds of stringent tests, uh, you know, through certified labs, and that's what's on file. You know, they should not be selling these systems if they're creating this wideband noise that's wiping out other kinds of systems. Let's turn but them they in. Do. 
Yeah, and, and sometimes that happens, and sometimes it's because people don't people cheap out. They're using unshielded, you know, uh, Cat five to go between the, these things, and that's a that's a radiation point. Is uh, you know unshielded cable things like that. So hmm. it's out there. There's definitely sources of interference, but you know, in general, when you're talking like you know AM radio, cell phones, Bluetooth, microwave ovens, those are not on the same frequency bands that, of what we're talking about. Is it a myth that um, people carrying their cell phone in their pocket can interfere with a transmitter? I hear that all the time, and, and people come up to me and they say, oh, should I turn off my phone? And I've heard other um, engineers say, oh, can you turn off your phone? I've never had that be a problem, and so is that a real thing? <laughs> it is a real thing, but not for the, the reason that you might think. Oh, okay. It's not interfering with the transmitter itself. It's inter- interfering with the microphone. So you, if you've got a bell pack on and a lav mic, you know, your lav mic is going to act like an antenna. And so in the past, let's say, 10, 15 years, you've seen a lot of microphone manufacturers doing things to help shield their mics from these GSM phones. You know, phones emit a certain kind of signal, and uh, if you have a, you know, if, you're, if your mic is not properly treated with bypassing and with ferrite and, and things like that, then it, it might well pick up and demodulate those signals. And you might hear it as a, you know, a da 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 you know, that kind of thing. It's not the, not the wireless transmitter and it's not being picked up by the wireless receivers, but it's being picked up by a very crude system, the microphone itself. So imagine a hotel that has 20 wireless units on property. During the busiest season, there may be days when um, 20 more rental units are added. So then you have 40 units. And now I'm realizing that this is nothing as bad as the Super Bowl you're talking about, where you have um, 100 channels that are being requested. But in my case, this is a big day. Um, so there are, sure. there are other days where an outside AV company might come in with even more unknown quantities. So what is the most appropriate way to plan for and protect our wireless connections. Should I generate a list of 40 frequencies and backup frequencies that we'll stick to and hand that to anyone else that comes in, or should I just stick to one group of channels? Yeah, it's a great question. And you know, to, to go back to the Super Bowl idea, one thing that they have that you don't uh, is that they have an on-site game day coordinator and that everything that comes th- into that stadium is funneled through that person or through that team of people, which means that they have control over their local environment and you at the hotel do not, okay? People can come in there without your approval and run their systems. However, thinking in that manner helps in the first place that, wow, so maybe I should try to control this. And maybe if I could get, you know, a little bit of backup from the people in charge of the hotel, as an example, uh, that would be helpful. So that's just more of a conceptual idea. But then as you suggested, I like a lot the idea that you would have a pre-coordinated list of frequencies that's much bigger than than anything you could possibly foresee. Um, What I would add to that is you probably want to cleverly put this all together with a careful understanding of any potential system that might come in. Someone might come in with some Sennheiser G3s. They might come in with electrosonics uh, kit on their, their video cameras. They might come in with some Sure handhelds, right? So the, the best thing at your disposal is to go and look at all the frequency ranges that all the manufacturers offer and come up with a plan that potentially encompasses all of those. 
And the software can help with that. You know, uh, IAS software, which is a, a professional coordinating software that I use and a lot of people do, uh, or Wireless Workbench, you know, you can actually plug in different manufacturer's stuff and it'll have those tables right in there. You can say, okay, what if it's Electrosonics Block 21? Okay, what if it's a, a Sennheiser G3 Band H? Uh, you know, and come up with a list. That sounds like so, a lot of work, Carl. It's a lot of work. Oh, it's a lot of work. Man. But if you were to do that, based, you know, start with your gear that you have and then expand from there, uh, you'd have all this stuff ready to go. Someone could come in and you say, what do you got? Oh, I've got Sennheiser uh, H-Band. Great, here's your list. How many do you have? 12. Here's a list. You know, that's a really good point because if I was thinking an outside AV company comes in, I just say, here's your exclusion list. Don't use any of these and, you know, and then take care of it yourself. But if it's camera op coming in, they care about the camera and they just use their same electrosonics setup all the time. I can't just hand them the list because they don't, they don't have the understanding or the um, tools to then decide on what would be a new frequency that would not um, step on me in any way. So I need to be more proactive in being able to say, here's something that will work for you. Ideally, yes. And, and to tell you a story, I, I was asked to support a show some years ago out in San Diego, and I went out there, and, and it was our systems on the guitars and the vocals, and there was an, a Sennheiser in-ear system, and you know, there was a lot going on. This was downtown San Diego. Uh, but I'll never forget, there's a couple things that happened that stick with me. One of them was that I gave a list of frequencies to the monitor guy to plug into all the, the Sennheiser IEMs, and he dutifully did that. And then later, about halfway through the first day of rehearsals, he came to me and he said, you know, I, I've always had problems with IEMs, except not this time. What's going on here? I said, well, it's properly coordinated. That, that's the biggest difference, probably. Hmm. And so that was kind of reassuring to know that, yes, it's working, and it's working at a level that these people aren't used to, okay, because we're doing it right. Um, one thing that happened was I, I had a spectrum analyzer sitting right next to me, and I noticed a spike show up on the second day of rehearsals that wasn't there before. So I took the, the analyzer and a directional antenna and started wandering around. Where is this guy? You know, turned out it was a trumpet player, and he had brought his own wireless mic and in-ear system, unbeknownst to anybody, so that he could hear himself on the stage. Interesting. So I said, well, you know, you're going to have to, um, to tell, you know, I needed to look at his equipment, take a look at the frequencies, figure out if that was going to conflict, and it did a little bit, so I had to do a little bit of reprogramming on some of the other systems. It's like it's a moving target. You know, you need to be flexible and willing to adjust. And so, yeah, if someone walks in with an ENG camera and they have no idea how to change the frequency, you might have to change a frequency. So I think my hybrid solution might be that I... I might not go as far as you're suggesting and research every possible piece of equipment that might come in, but if I start a document and I know at least what I have on hand, then I can continue to add to it. And every time someone comes in with something, I can do an analysis, find out if that's going to conflict, and then add that to my document so that the next time that person comes in or the same piece of equipment comes in. So I can, I'm, I'm suggesting that I'm proactive with what I know about now, but then sort of reactive and continue to build the document as I go along. No, that sounds like a wonderful idea. And so there's a feedback loop built in that over time you're going to amass this, this wonderful database. And, you know... It, it, each time it makes it a little easier, a little easier. And then, you know, some rogue piece of equipment shows up, you're like, well, oh, you know, I think we can fit that in. And be confident that it's possible. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, second part to that question. Is there somewhere where I can register or report those frequencies that I'm going to be using so that someone won't set up outside or next door or step all over me? I mean, is there some place that every company knows that, oh, I'm going to this property in this city, so here's a database online where I can look up what they're using? Yes and no. Uh, there is something called the geolocation database, and there's there's more than one of these. They're all interconnected. Uh, KeyBridge Global uh, is is one of these databases. Spectrum Bridge is another one. They're not exactly designed to do what you're describing, although that could be a possibility. These are actually designed to keep uh, TV band devices off your frequencies. Okay, originally, TV band devices, we, we haven't seen many of these yet, but what they are is they share the TV spectrum with the TV broadcasters and the wireless mics. Uh, but what was written into the law with those was that they can't step on anybody who's registered in the database, which would include TV stations and registered wireless mics. Okay. However, if anyone is judicious and they go to register their wireless mics because they're going to do an event, and you've already registered yours, it would prevent them from using those frequencies. So it, it has the potential to work the way you're talking. The thing is that not very many people are using it right now. Okay, so it, it might not be worth my time. <laughs> it might not. Although, you know, as those devices start to show up more and more and you, you're getting mysterious signals and problems, that's probably the time to get familiar with that and, and begin using that. Mm, okay. There's restrictions in place. I mean, you have to already do certain things to qualify to be able to, to lock out those frequencies. You have to you know, use up other avenues first. Uh, otherwise, you know, the, the, the spectrum is a finite resource, and you know, anybody could go in there and block anything out they wanted. So they've got rules in place, but it's something you need to know, to know about for the future. So Carl, I've heard a lot about how great Electrosonics are and I've read articles about how great they are and I like to look at the site and look at the pretty pictures. I've never (laughs) actually laid any hands on them because I don't know, they've just never been at any of the places that I've worked at. Um, Do you know why is that? Who's using uh, your stuff? Well, primarily we're mostly known in the film and television production world. Okay. I would say probably 75 to 80% of all Hollywood, you know, big budget pictures are done with, with our equipment. Uh, at least 50 to 60% of television, certainly reality TV is, is one area where we're very, very strong. And I think those users choose it for a couple reasons. They're familiar with us and we're familiar with them. Uh, you know, we've been doing this a long time. We've kind of, in a sense, custom tailored the product line for those users. And plus, when it comes to those big budget things, when it costs, who knows, a million dollars a day you know, to shoot a big budget movie on location, those things cannot fail. So uh, it, it's built for that, and that's where we're known. However, uh, we are also in a lot of theaters these days. Um, you know, More and more, I would say, because the product line is well-suited to theater, uh, it's not the most expensive stuff out there by any means, but it, it, it's excellent performing gears, as you've probably heard. Okay, I thought that was actually. I thought maybe the price was actually the thing that was making me not see it. Well, uh, here's the way I would put it: is that we have the reputation of being expensive, uh, and we really don't offer consumer grade gear. You, you know, you can't go to Guitar Center and buy a low price Electrosonics or a, you know. Uh, you know, made by, you know, designed by Electrosonics, you know, that kind of stuff. That doesn't exist. We really only make a pro-grade range of products. So, 
you know, if someone just first hears about us and then goes and looks, they, they might have sticker shock. But for those who have been in the business a long time and know what really good wireless costs, we're right in line with anybody else. It's, it's not exorbitantly expensive, and it's less expensive than some of the gear that is out there. Mm, okay. Um, so I, I just think that there's maybe the rumor that we're too expensive, and so people don't actually even check for themselves. I would say, you know, if you're looking at putting in a system, uh, sit down and really add everything up. You know, put a system together and see what it costs, and you'll find out we're no more than anybody else. Uh, for comparable quality equipment. Carl, we're crushing a lot of rumors and myths on this, uh, this interview. <laughs> it's one of my good. life goals is to crush <laughs> myths. Um, but, you know, I was going to say one place that you probably don't hear about it too often, but there are some top touring acts using our products, and they came, a, they came in contact with the products via, via various means, but there's a lot of guitar players out there, like Neil Sean of Journey, that... tried every wireless and ended up going back to a wire. And I, I heard that story a lot. They, they just didn't like the tone of what they were using. They didn't like the reliability. And, you know, so they went back to a wire. And then for whatever reason, their guitar tech heard about us or someone introduced me to somebody or whatever. And they tried it and it's, wow, this is what I've always wanted. So it's kind of like, there you go. Here's some technology that was developed for a different industry, but it plays very well when you when you get it out there on these top touring acts. And these are guys that don't mind spending the money for equipment that that works. You know, this stuff sounds good. It works good. I never have any problems. If we do have problems, you guys are always right on it. So I don't mind spending the money. And, you know, we don't do any kind of endorsement deals. That may be another reason why you don't hear about it as often. Uh, you know, we never give anything away. Uh, that, you know, it doesn't matter who it is. And, and part of the reason there is, you know, if we're giving it away to somebody, what, what do we say to the next guy that comes along? You know, are, you're not worthy of this or, you know. <laughs> and then you could even look at it from this point of view. You know, if, if, if someone like Neil Sean doesn't buy it, uh, you know, who is going to buy it? Yeah. Y- you know what I'm saying? So, the people with so that, money that's don't been get our, it, who will? Yeah, exactly. Then no one will because, and, you know, we're also a small company. You know, we don't have the big marketing departments and budgets that some of these bigger companies do. Um, you know, but we do our best. And, uh, and it's great when, when, we, when we hear back from somebody who uh, was skeptical until they tried it. And one of my favorite stories was ACDC. You know, they'd been using another system and, they heard about ours and wanted to try it, and the guy told me, um, production manager said, you know, with every other system, we've had to use a paddle antenna, and we've had to do kinds of, you know, some special things to make these things work to get the kind of range we need and so on. And I said, well, you can always do that, but my, what I suggest is go ahead and try it just like it shows up. You know, the whip antennas, nothing fancy, just try it. And if you think you need those things, I'll be happy to sell you those things, but I don't think you're going to need them. You know, after two weeks of rehearsal and the first couple of dates on the tour, he called back and said, "You were right. We don't need anything but this. Uh. We've had more range. We have more range than we we could shake a stick at." And you know, so that makes me happy. Carl, I think you're going to have to check the ROI on this podcast because you guys are going to blow up. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people sign up for the Synod Con conference? ProSoundTraining.com. You'll see the in-person training, making wireless work is the first one on that list right there. It's coming right up January 3-4, so it's only a few weeks away. Cool. So ProSoundTraining.com, January 3rd and 4th in Dallas, Texas. If you are there, please come out. I would love to see a lot of people for this training. Tell everyone who else is going to be, because uh, it's not just you, so who else is going to be there? Right, it's, uh, as I mentioned before, James Stoffo, 
of radioactive designs and a veteran of the business, done a ton of great big shows, a lot of Super Bowls and things like that. And Tim Veer from Shure, and Tim's another great trainer, has been around a long time. I've known Tim, uh, Tim a bunch of years. He's been on panels with me and things. And then uh, for, the, uh, for the upcoming FCC issues, Gino Sigismondi from Shure as well. And Gino's a great guy, done a lot of training out there. So uh, it's mainly the three of us, and then Gino's doing some stuff at the end with the FCC auctions. And Carl, where is the best place for people to follow your work online? I would say probably uh, we have a Facebook group, uh, Electrosonics Facebook group. Uh, there's 2,300 some odd members of that group. It's very active, a lot of great advice flowing around and interesting questions posed there. Um, I'm on there quite a bit monitoring and posting. Uh, so that's probably the easiest place. We also have a Twitter feed. It's just electric, you know, Twitter slash Electrosonics. Uh, but it, I would say the Facebook group's the, be- the better place. Okay, great. And you, I'm sorry, you said people can ask questions on there, right? Absolutely. It happens all the time. And 24-7. I'll make a recommendation for a resource. I read. I tried to read um, one of the wireless guides that you have on, on the Electrosonics website, and I yes. found it kind of overwhelming and not very much, uh, I don't know, not really user-friendly. Like I, I only mm-hmm. made it through a couple of pages, and I was just like, oh, this is overwhelming. But you have an FAQ page that is extensive and it's super helpful. Yes. It goes on and on and on with people just asking really relevant questions about like what kind of batteries to use and what if they're having this problem and that problem. And uh, I mm-hmm. got a lot of a lot of use out of that page. Yeah, the FAQ is great, and we've made a number of attempts to renovate that uh, the wireless guide, and we've gotten a certain ways along. But you know, we're just a little bit resource constrained, being a small company. But we do have the intention of coming out with a brand new version of that that's much more up to date with a lot more new information, as well as some more practical stuff. It, it's a, very much of a, th- a theoretical book, mm-hmm. uh, to talking about you know what goes on you know under the hood of these systems, and there's a lot of great information there, but it is very technical. Well, Carl, thank you so much for coming on Sound Design Live. My pleasure, Nathan. Anytime. Sound Design. Sound Design Live produces free audio podcast interviews with industry experts, product reviews of pro audio books, hardware, and software and tutorials and articles on sound engineering, sound design, and sound system design and optimization. Subscribe today at sounddesignlive.com or by searching for Sound Design Live in iTunes or SoundCloud. One thing is, you know, I, I, having the fundamentals and all is great and, and that helps in every way, but also really listening, not, not just, um, well, certainly listening to uh, more experienced people to, that might give you advice, you know, take some of that advice to heart, but also using your ears, you know, as, as a great troubleshooting tool and to get them trained, you know, that back in my days of live sound, it was, uh, it was a skill that I gradually learned was to be able to identify by the sound of the hum, what kind, what maybe what the source of the hum might be as an example. And it's the same with wireless. If you understand the difference of sound of the different kinds of issues, you know, difference between a dropout and taking a hit and distortion uh, in the signal and things like that, uh, that's very helpful. So work on your, on your listening skills uh, in a couple different ways. Oh, that reminds me though that one of the resources that you have in Electrosonics is there are a few 
a handful of PowerPoint documents that you can download, PowerPoint presentations. And I can't remember the guy's name who put them together, but there are a couple of really good ones that I, that I went through. And one of them uh, was about identifying those exact sounds. And I be- mm-hmm. there may have been some audio samples that came with them, but I think I was reading it while I was on the train or something, and so I couldn't listen to them. But um, right. that's another resource. Sound design. Yeah. <laughs>